I'm Kaitel. And I'm Joe. And we're the United Mates. Back in our school days, a shared passion for football brought us together as best friends. Today, we're separated by an ocean. I live in our hometown, London. And these days, I live in LA. But we still enjoy nothing more than chatting about the beautiful game. So we started a podcast. Join us. A few more old mates from school here and there. And new friends too from the world of professional football and beyond. This is the United Mates Football Podcast. Hello, hello, welcome and welcome back to the United Mates Football Podcast. As ever, I am joined by my co-host Joe and we are both very much looking forward to chatting with today's special guest. He's a North Londoner like Joe and I, but these days he's living on the West Coast of America in Southern California, much like myself. During his playing career, he was a key part of the most unlikely of success stories that was Wimbledon's crazy gang. From there, he joined a peak Premier League era Newcastle United side known at the time as The Entertainers. Today's guest also represented the Three Lions on the international scene too, and speaking of The Entertainers of the Tune, something must have stuck from his time up on Tyneside, because since hanging up his boots, you can currently find him bringing his expert analysis on the air as a personality to Fox Sports, where he covers all things quote-unquote soccer. We welcome Warren Barton to the United Mates Football Podcast. Warren, thank you for joining us. It is a real pleasure to have you with us, and how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for having me on. Uh, I know it's been a difficult time for a lot of people, but yeah, just looking forward to it. And thank you very much for the intro. Very nice intro. Thank you. Cheers, Warren. Yeah, we're looking forward to getting into some conversation about your career and what you're up to these days. But Joe, of course, is on the call as well. Joe, what are you up to? It's um, it's nearly the weekend now, which is exciting. And yeah, it's great to have you um, with us, Warren. Um, And we always, um, when we have a guest, we always start with an icebreaker question. So we've recently noticed for you that, that you've had an interaction with Vinnie Jones on Twitter, I believe. And obviously, Vinnie, like yourself, um, has had a career in, I guess, entertainment since his playing days. And he's carried his hard man persona into a lot of roles. But our icebreaker question for you is, and it might not be Vinnie, but if you were basically to be in a, a good cop, bad cop television series, which... Um, footballer would you sort of have alongside you and would it be a good cop or a bad cop uh great question good icebreaker i think if it's good but good guy bad guy you've got to go with any you know or he would be the good guy because he's generally one of the nicest people you'll meet uh going forward and yes he was driving around anyone that hasn't seen it in los angeles and he's bentley so he's not done too bad for himself actually driving around for someone that was uh, uh working on a building site and people said he didn't have talent he's done over 200 movies now in los angeles and i still see him as a good friend of mine and he's been great with my kids as well as they've grown up and um you know he's gone through a tough time himself lately obviously personally but yeah i think it would be him or i might go with a david Ginola being a, another guy um with the police not maybe having the best reputation at the moment <laughs> we have to be careful in case i get a speeding ticket somewhere along the line on the 405 in los angeles but someone like david would smooth over any problem what was going on he's just as, as smooth as they come so uh, if i'm going to be stuck in a car for 12 hours i think i'd like to be with someone either like Vinny, who could be entertaining or David, you know, and I could just end up looking at him and that, that, that'd be fine. So it's uh, t- two good choices. I tell you what, I wouldn't want to be with Alan Shearer, 12 hours in the car with him. You, uh, you, you, you get out of there pretty sharpest, you know, you wouldn't want to be with him too much just talking about himself. So yeah, no, I, I'd stick with either Vinny or David, you know, good question to start with my fellas. Good question. Well, I'm glad you like it and I'm glad you chose Ginola because I'm a Spurs fan and one of the first Spurs shirts I had had Ginola on the back. So I fully approve of that choice, but um. I think if I if I was making myself as a bad cop, why not? I'd probably have Ben Davis at Spurs as a good cop because he seems one of the nicest footballers going. So I think he'd do quite well as a good cop. But Kai, how about you? Who would be your fellow cop, I guess? <laughs> I'm considering how like small and unintimidating I am. It would have to be, I couldn't look further than Martin Skirtle. He wouldn't even have to say anything. He could just sit in the corner of the room looking kind of scary. And then I would empathize with whoever the, the the suspect was. I think I think eventually between the two of us, we'd crack the case. But moving on from buddy cop, kind of Hollywood scenarios, back to football. And Warren, you've obviously had an illustrious playing career, which saw you represent some of England's biggest clubs and play for England too. So we definitely want to ask you 
about a few of those experiences. But before we do get into that, we also wanted to know a little bit about how your journey started in the first place. And then coming full circle, we've got some questions about what you're up to today. So taking it all back to your childhood, what made a young Warren fall in love with the beautiful game in the first place? I think anyone that was playing football in, the, in that sort of era, even now uh, in the UK where we are, and you touched that, I mean, obviously in California and the States, but in the UK, in Britain, uh, football is the number one sport. You know, yes, there's rugby and cricket and other sports, but predominantly where I was in North London, it was it was football. Uh, and living at about a mile away from Highbury, my dad was an Arsenal fan. Uh, my, I've got an older brother who we used to go over at Stoke New Instant, a place called Clissell Park, and go and play you know football one against one, full length for the field from eight o'clock in the morning till the sun went down. And we would do that regular, any, any bit of grass that we could find, or even I was watching Paul Gascoigne's uh, documentary actually um, as well. And it's the same thing. We used to live near a, a petrol station uh, where we lived in Walthamstow and it had a brick wall where the car wash was. And I used to go up there with a tennis ball, you know, whether I was seven, eight, nine years of age and just kick a tennis ball against the wall, play squash uh, with there with my brother or a friend that would come over. So, you know, the culture that I was brought up in, the lifestyle that I was brought up in was really predominantly football. You know, I would get ready to go and watch games. Uh, at the time, people like Liam Brady, Frank Stapleton was like my heroes um, watching Arsenal play and getting to three cup finals in the late 70s, early 80s and seeing Alan Sunderland score the winning goal against Manchester United. You know, that makes you feel in love with the game. You know, remember your first World Cup. It's always the, the first type of thing. And, you know, having an older brother that played for a local club where we lived when we moved a little bit further out of London uh, and then asking me to come along, it was it was just a natural progression for me to go and do. And like every kid at that time, and I hope every kid now, it was to plan a cup final like Alan Sunderland did, represent your country, uh, like a Brian Robson, who was my hero as well, coming through as a, as a younger player, lucky enough to play against Brian and, and then be coached by him when Terry Venables with Euro 96. So, you know, to be around people like that, to be near your, your heroes was, was a dream come true for a boy that was, as I said, born in North London, uh, playing football like every, every kid. There was millions and millions of people having the dream to try and emulate and play in a cup final and, and represent your country. And, you know, lucky enough, I was able to, to, to live my dream. Fantastic. Well, no, it's good to hear you're from North London as well, Warren. Although it's a shame, <laughs> it's a shame about the Arsenal connections, but I'll let you off. I'll let you off. At least you didn't play for them. <laughs> but um, so, Warren, you've obviously um, you've lived in the States for a, a number of years now um, with your punditry career and some other stuff that we'll talk about. But um, now that you've been over in the States for a while, does does any part of you sort of wish that perhaps you'd moved a bit sooner or maybe at the end of your career played in the MLS for a bit or did did the move to the United States come at a good time for you? Yeah, no, it was a, the perfect time. You know, for me, I was lucky enough when the Premier League first started early 90s, uh, a little bit before that, you know, Italy was the destination to go to with the likes of Rude Hullet and these great Italian stars, Roberto Baggio and Del Piero was coming through and Zidane's and Juventus, AC Milan's that they had with all these wonderful, wonderful players, uh, Maldini, et cetera, et cetera. But then the Premier League, hit it off um, and that was the destination and they wasn't coming to to England for the food and the weather they was coming there for the football the money and the fans and so throughout my career uh, that went on for like you know by and large 16 17 years was in the Premier League and I was lucky enough to be involved for a majority of my time and even towards the end of my career I was lucky in, in a sense that I was able to go to a club like Derby County it was a good football club good people um, difficult time but still, I, I appreciated the fans, the stadium. And then I got to like 35. Uh, I'd gone to Queen's Park Rangers for a few months with Ian Holloway. And he asked me, listen, Warren, I want you to keep running up and down the wings like you used to do when I used to play against you. I said, Ollie, you're crazy. I said, I'm 35 years of age. I said, I can't. And he went, well, that's what we need. And so that lasted about three months. I tried my best and tried to get fit. But, it's yeah, my legs wasn't going as fast as they used to go when I was 21 years of age. So I explained that to Ollie. And as graceful as it was, we, uh, we, we shook hands and moved on. And then I went back to Wimbledon where, for me, it all first started AFC Wimbledon and help out with them behind the scenes. People who was losing jobs. Uh, Stuart Murdoch, the coach, was in tears on the phone with me with what he was going through, the pressure. He didn't know where to turn. And I'd had a wealth of experience. I'd finished my coaching qualifications and I went there to help. I was on £90 a week for the last six months at Wimbledon and they moved up to MK Dons and purely to go back. So 
the, the, the move to America uh, was in 08. I retired in 05. I had three years of doing media for Sky predominantly, but then ITV for World Cup and BBC as well for different, um, different shows as well. But it was the right time for me to move to America. When I was playing, the opportunity wasn't there. And as I said, when I got to 35, I had no more to give. I'd given everything. You know, I've been told twice you're too small not going to make it then you play for arguably one of the most you know exciting teams in the world and play for some of the best managers in the world so Bobby Robson Venables and, and then obviously Kevin Keegan and Kenny Dalgleish etc etc um it was the right time for me to move on and the opportunity to come over to America me and my wife when we didn't have the kids would come over here and loved it whether it was Chicago Los Angeles San Francisco Seattle We'd come to loads of different places and really enjoyed the positivity, um, the energy, the people, the, the lifestyle, and, and obviously Southern California, the weather. So we made that move in, in 08 and, you know, 12 years. It's been magnificent, you know, for my kids to have their recess, their playground is go down the beach and be with their friends and be in sunshine for, what, 364 days of the year. Um, it is something that we made a change. Of course, I miss certain things about England. You know, I miss my family. Obviously, that goes without saying. But I miss football. I miss the the intensity and the fact that it does mean something. You know, you said you lived out here, and with with football or soccer, shall we call it, is that it's up against four predominantly other sports. You know, NFL is a monster. Uh, Major League Baseball in certain parts of the states is is still predominantly strong, although that's changing with the younger people. NBA is through the roof with people like LeBron James that you have as as great role models, and hockey to an extent in certain parts of the country. And then you throw on top of that college sports, which is, that's its own monster in whether it's Alabama or UCLA, where I am, they are, you know, huge businesses in their own rights. They've got their own fan base of a hundred thousand people watching them play, you know, football games or college games that are sold out and people are waiting. So it is growing the game over here uh, and it's taken its time, but probably in the last three to five years, I've seen a real growth in the, enthusiasm the knowledge and obviously the the finance that has gone into the mls and obviously usl as well but it was never really on my radar at that time to come over to america to play because uh, as i said i'd sort of come towards the end of my career and i was lucky enough to keep playing in the premier league until i was 33 34 and then I had a couple of years in i think probably the hardest leagues whether it was non-league or the championship for the last two years and and that was enough for me because i, I just as i said i didn't have any more to give as an expat, I can definitely relate to missing a lot of those things, but I can also relate living in Southern California to... I don't miss the rain, put it that no, way. No, exactly. You missed the 364 <laughs> days of sunshine. You're not wrong about that. You couldn't really ask yeah. for much more. Um, but sticking with the States and moving a bit away from sort of the punditry, but to some more football, you say you, you miss football, but I know you've been involved since you've been over here. You managed the San Diego Flash for a couple of years in the NPSL, and currently you're the technical director of the Del Mar Carmel Valley Sharks which is a youth football team also in San Diego so on that note do you have any ambitions of getting back into coaching again at a decent level or even to hold a boardroom position perhaps at a professional club one day yes yeah very much so as I said moving over to the states I had uh, you know three boys at the time that was 10 8 and 4 and a big part of me being here with my wife and kids was to be with them you know I wanted to take them to school if I was back in the UK I would presume I'd either be doing a lot of media work or I would have started coaching. You know, good friends of mine, Stuart Pierce, went into it and, you know, the list goes on and on. Shay Givens doing it now and a lot of people that I did my pro license with have got jobs. So I would have probably, I would think, and I would hope, would have been involved in the game back in the UK. But doing that is a 24-7 job if you're going to do it properly. But I wanted to be with my kids. I wanted to be able to take them to school, to, to pick them up at Christmas and, and be with them. As I said, I was very, very fortunate with Fox Sports, which is part of obviously Sky and Rupert Murdoch, to be able to have the best of both worlds, to actually coach uh, my kids, which wasn't on the agenda, but I got fed up listening to guys with accents, thinking that they knew about the game. And a parent asked me and I ended up coaching uh, my three boys right the way through um, from their middle school to high school, which I loved. It was great for me to be only their dad, but also their coach and be with their friends and you know, you know, play at academy level, which is a, obviously a good level. The first thing I did when I moved over here in 08, I worked for LA Galaxy Academy. And quite ironic, the coach at the time was Rude Hullet, but he lasted about three weeks and got the sack. And then Bruce Arena walked through the door and he wasn't really ready to that transition of academy players. You know, he'd been brought up in the college system. So anyone that we had in the, in the academy 
was being really pushed to go to um, college. Again, that was a strange for me because it was my culture to bring kids at 16, 17 to start training with the first team. And, and Bruce wasn't really part of that. Dave Saracen as well, his assistant. They'd been brought up in that mentality. So it was great for me to understand what the, the culture is at that time. Again, saying it was like 2008, 2009. It's changed now. You know, people are coming from 16, 17. You've seen them from Dallas go off to Bayern Munich or going across to, to Celtic or to Ajax. So all these young players have coming through. So being involved in that academy setup was great. And then it allowed me, again, to be working with Fox Sports and, and whether it's been World Cups, you know, Champions League, Premier League, Bundesliga, we're doing League MX now. So it's given me a great Gold Cup. It's given me a real wide range of variety of, of uh, different leagues, uh, different teams, different style of football to watch. And coaching at the moment, I've still got my youngest son who's 16 years of age. And uh, like with him, I wanted to get through high school, which is another year. Um, and then he doesn't need me. <laughs> you know, they don't need their dad to uh, drop them off anywhere. They're ready to go into the world like I did with my eldest son, middle son. And now it's going to be with my youngest son. So to answer your question, yeah, I would love to get into the game, the professional game. I'm trying to speak to people at USL, um, the commissioner there, and putting my name around MLS. I speak to people like Adrian Heath is at Minnesota, Peter Vermes is at Kansas. Um, you know, just letting them know that I'm a, you know, that I'm around and I'm looking if they hear anything. Um, so it's a waiting game, um, which is quite frustrating because I'm not the most patient person in the world. And I feel I've got so much to offer. You know, I feel that I've had, you know, a, a good playing career. Uh, but not only that, I studied seven years to get my coaching qualifications, UA for B, A, and ultimately the pro license. I've done some work with Brad Frieda with the, the national team at the U19s, seen them young players come through. Uh, I know what it's like to be in a big changer, you know, to be with the likes of Ginola and Les Ferdinand and arguably the best Premier League striker ever, Alan Shearer, and to be around them people and have respect uh, and earn their respect uh, as well. So that doesn't phase me. Um, and obviously I've got the qualification as well as the 500 games under your belt. So it's a waiting game and you're just trying to, wait for the right opportunity but it's it's not easy because people see you as a threat people see that you maybe want to take them over but they don't know me they don't know the type of person I am and I would want to try and support people you know I spoke to Landon Donovan down in uh, San Diego and he went in a different direction that, that's fine you know it's, it, it's his choice it's his prerogative but I just feel I've got so much to give uh, in the game and um, you know I would like to play for me you know, I look at what Sir Bobby Robson was, Kevin Keegan, Terry Venables, Ray Hartford, you know, all these wonderful coaches and good people uh, that I've played under, as well as someone like Rude Hullett, which was different. You know, Rude's got great knowledge of the game, but his man management skills were poor. And I feel I've got a lot to, to, to give back. And as I said, I've been watching now soccer for the last 12 years at grassroots level and, and the highest level. So, you know, if you're looking about doing your homework and looking at games, I, I think I've done my, <laughs> enough hours doing that. So, it's just waiting. It's just, you know, seeing if the opportunity comes along and, and letting know people that you are serious because people think, you know, you've got the sunshine, you've got the beach, you've got Fox. Do you really want to you know, give that up? And the answer is, yeah, because I love the game. It's just something missing in me. You know, I, I enjoy coaching the kids and it's great, but I want to be around, you know, better players and, and, and you know, the, the way the game's going now with you know, the uh, stadiums, the facilities that they've got. You know, I, I would love to get my hands on it, and I think I'll do a, a good job as well. Warren, obviously, your CV speaks for itself, and you know, someone would be very lucky to have you. But let's um, let's go back to your playing career now. And you obviously started at Dagenham and then signed for Maidstone. But interestingly, whilst you were still at Dagenham in the the non-league setup, you were still working, um, I believe, at an accounting firm called Arthur Anderson. So, what I was interested to know, Warren, is during your time as a non-league footballer. Was your goal, were you completely focused on making that step up to the professional game and that was the only goal you had in mind? Or were you sort of in the background mapping up a sort of plan B as well? So how much tunnel vision did you have to really make it in the professional game is what I'm asking. That's all I knew. Um, and, you know, it sounds glamorous, Arthur Anderson, chartered accountants, but I'll let you into a little secret. I was actually just collecting the documents off the printers and taking them up to the secretaries and the... The managers, but it sounded quite nice when I went on like a match of the day or match magazine or shoot magazine when I did my article when I'm there in a suit and walking through the, the city of London, making out of my chart and accounting. But actually, I was going across uh, North, well, East London at the time because we'd moved. 
on a 50cc uh, moped over Hackney Marshes, freezing cold, going into a mailroom and taking documents around. So it, it, it sounded pretty uh, sophisticated, but it was actually quite meaningful work and just get on with it and do it. But, you know, I used to drive it, as I said, on my bike, getting over there, doing it. It was a means to an end because all I was doing was looking out the window and looking over the River Thames, which is a, you know, not a bad view to have. But it was like, I want to be playing. I want to be playing football. You know, when I was at school with my wife, we was at the same high school together. She'd have her books and folders and pens and pencils and shows you how old we are. We had pens and pencils then, but I had a, a big football bag with a, a football in it. That was it. I didn't have a pen, didn't have a pencil. She was in class A. I was I was going out for the day to look at look at different things, and that's all I knew. That's all I wanted to do. And as I said, that's what drove me on. Uh, at thirteen at Watford, quite ironic when Graham Taylor was the manager because he then picked me for England when I was twenty years of age, twenty one. Uh, said that we was too small, and and uh, you know Leighton Orient, Frank Clark, a Newcastle legend, actually, he was at Leighton Orient. He told me at sixteen I was too small, wasn't going to make it. It was them, you know hardships really that drove me on that have the focus uh, to, to do that because I knew nothing else I didn't want to do anything else I, I only love one thing uh, and that's that's why I still have the passion for it now because you know I've mentioned this many times to different interviews and even my kids as well is I gave everything to the game and it gave me so much more back I, I could not imagine as I said working for Arthur Anderson's driving a 50cc that it would have planned out to give me what I what I had in the end, not financially. I'm not talking about financially. I'm talking about, you know, fulfillments of representing your country, playing in the Champions League, challenging for a title for a team, playing with a crazy game, which was a great experience. And I loved every minute of it, of being around people like Vinny and John and, and all the boys at Wimbledon. We still have a WhatsApp with 20 of us still keeping in contact and wish each other, you know, happy birthday. The same thing at Newcastle, you know, to have... What I feel, as I said, someone like Alan Shearer, Shay Given, you know, Gary Speedo, I love him. You know, unfortunately, we, we lost him and people like Rob Lee that to call them my friends and can pick up the phone and Stuart Pierce to have a chat with him, John Barnes. You know, I've, I've been around some great people. So that's all I know. Uh, and that's why, as I said, I loved every every minute of it and I miss every minute of it. But I was ready to to go in a different direction. Um would you ask me would I want to go back and, and do it? Of course, because it was it was a great time. It was really, really a lot of fun. Um, uh, and there's no way that I wanted to work in an office nine till five looking at a computer. That that really wasn't for me. So um, I was lucky. Uh, I worked hard. Uh, I put the, put the effort commitment in because that's all I knew. You know, I'd go for runs at night when it was pouring down with rain just because I wasn't the most talented. So I had to utilise what I had and that was that was my body and <laughs> look after it and, and do the best I can. So it panned out all right in the end. You know, um, don't think, I think Arthur Anderson is not even there anymore. So <laughs> I, I might've done okay. I might've put them down as well, but it was a, it was a fun thing because, you know, it was, it was a means to an end, but I was never, ever going to keep picking up documents and take them to secretaries and, and then sending them out on the mail. So no, not for me. Fantastic. Well, like you said, the you know, it just shows the value of hard work because you got that move from Dagenham to Maidstone. And then after a relatively short time at Maidstone, you impressed Wimbledon enough to um, snap you up, which obviously at the time Wimbledon were a massive team. They won the FA Cup pretty recently before you joined a couple of seasons before, I think. But um, I guess you mentioned it a bit earlier, you know, you said about the crazy gang. When you um, When you first found out that Wimbledon were interested in you, did that kind of whole crazy gang culture appeal to you was that part of the appeal of going there or was it mainly the fact that you were going to go and play for a really top side um in in the in the top flight no I mean at, we'd been at Keith Peacock who was the assistant coach of Alan Kerbetsy at Charlton for years Keith was our manager and the great West Ham player Tommy Taylor uh, was his was his coach and we got into the playoff with with Cambridge actually where Dion Dublin was uh, and both of us was being linked there was a, being where we played in Maidstone near the M25 we wasn't actually in Maidstone it was in Dartford which was close to the M25 we used to have a lot of scouts that would go where it would be West Ham Spurs uh, and obviously you know we was getting a bit of interest as a, as a team uh, and obviously with my age it was getting a little bit of attention because Wimbledon Dennis was leaving he'd uh, you know Dennis Weiss was was leaving done well in the FA Cup he was the next player to leave Wimbledon to go off to Chelsea so that they was already looking for their replacement and you know Wimbledon was a well-run machine um, that was looking for players and they had no hesitation Bobby Gould was actually the manager but he left in that summer uh, and Ray Hartford took over was was arguably one of the best coaches I worked with Ray um, unfortunately we lost him as well another great man that we uh 
we lost. He was the coach. So there was interest from Tottenham, West Ham, but Wimbledon was the ones that put their money where their mouth is and went in straight away. And for them to pay, doesn't sound a lot now, 300,000, that's someone's week's wages, Ozil's wages. Um, but at the time, it was, a, it was a lot of money for them to spend on a, you know, a guy that had only really been playing professional football for 10 months. But they took the chance um, <laughs> and it paid off. They got four and a half million five years later. So it, it paid off for them. But what Wimbledon was great at was looking at research. You know, I played non-league. And I went into a changing room, although it was the Premier League, they still had the mentality of sticking together, fighting for each other, that non-league mentality. Because if you remember with Wimbledon, they'd come through every division with Dave Bassant through the fourth division, non, sorry, non-league, fourth division at the time, third, second, and then got into the old first division, which ended up being the Premier League. So the, the DNA of that club is sticking together. And as I said, with Vinnie Jones, he was a, a fielder that ended up playing for Wimbledon and, and, and went on and had a, a good career with Leeds, Chelsea and Sheffield United. So part of that being together and sticking together and practical jokes. And as I said, that mentality, and even when like John Hartson come to the club who had started off at Luton and asked, he bought into it. Ben Thatcher had come from Millwall. So we, you know, we had a lot of kids that had played for some you know, good clubs, but they come to Wimbledon and bought into it. And it was, we could never get away with it now, you know, setting people's clothes on fire and, I remember getting picked for England the first time in the squad and going in the car park and my tyres on my car. It was only a Saab, but it was my pride and joy at the time. And tyres have all been slashed. Now I'm having to go at Vinny or fasting and you're out of order. I've got no money to pay for tyres and you've done that. They said it wasn't us, it was the owner. You know, Sam, my man, did it. So it was that type of mentality. And again, just a quick, quick story. And we was playing Everton at Plough Lane. And as you always, there was a bit of a scuffle in midfield quite early on in the game. And I've gone running over there as a bit of a peacemaker. Well, Fash has come over, and anyone that knows John Fash knew he was a, a strong person, to say the least, and muscle on muscle. And he nearly broke my arm, pushed my arm down as I was trying to protect the players and started going after their player. I forget who it was at the time. It might have been someone like Kevin Ratcliffe or whoever it was at Everton or one of them players. We, Barry Horn, we went after them. And so I've gone walking in the changing room at half time, and Fash has come in and thrown me against the wall. Um, Ray being Ray Hartford just walked into the, the the coach's office and left us to it and Fash grabbed me around the neck and said don't ever do that again so I said what Fash he went we, it's, either, it's us against them It's that's the mentality we ain't peacemakers as soon as they start on one of us they start on all of us and I'd had that at Maystone I'd had that at Dagenham and Redbridge you know for us to win a game to get £5 non-league was a big deal for these painters decorators policemen it was a big deal we all stuck together and did what we needed to and that was a sort of scenario that's carried on throughout my career. You do what you need to do to, to help your mates out and win a game. And, and Wimbledon was no different. Although, of course, we had better players and, you know, the coaching and, you know, some of the players that have played for Wimbledon have gone on and had really, really good careers. Um, but it was that togetherness that carried them through non-league to get up to where they was. And that was part of the DNA of Wimbledon. And when the Norwegians come over, they didn't understand. They didn't get it just because they were... Uh, Wellington boots and you know was a little bit different it's they didn't have they didn't understand what Wimbledon was about and that's why you know the, the players and they were so successful that it was um it was fun and but that was part of the culture so from going from non-league to Wimbledon although it was the Premier League and four divisions I jumped it wasn't different so much in the mindset of being that family and we're all, we're all in it together and I I enjoyed that I really enjoyed that and thrived in that environment it's interesting to hear that, I guess, sort of deep down, you were kind of the, the good Samaritan of the, the crazy gang, although John Fashnew clearly wasn't wasn't having it. Um, but sort of moving back to, you mentioned the uh, the law firm and sort of assisting these lawyers from the mailroom, moving on to like football assists. When you were at Wimbledon, you moved from your traditional kind of right back position into midfield for a, a short amount of time and sort of flourished on the on the assist end of things. So do you have a preference between playing as a right back or as a centre midfielder? Where did you feel more comfortable? And did you feel like maybe you had a bit more of a career as a central midfielder that you never got to explore? No, I was lucky enough. I mean, I feel my best position was a fullback. I was one of them at that time, early 90s. You know, when I play against, say, Ryan Giggs or Lee Sharp, it was, I'm not going to defend. I'm going to take you the other way. I'm going to run and push you back. So, you know. I'm not saying it, but the Cafu type of player, that he was that player that would get forward and nowhere near his technique and ability. But our mindset was the same, is to push people back and try and take them. 
when Ray came in, he, he liked my midfield because I could deliver a ball. Uh, he liked my work ethic as well. And we had a solid fullback called Roger Joseph that would just get the ball, get it into fast, then I could get forward and support and deliver some of the balls into the penalty area. I had the energy and the way that we played. When I went to Newcastle, uh, actually Kevin liked me in that centre midfield, but we had like Rob Lee and Lee Clark, but then he liked me in that right back because he was, we talk about Pep and how he wants his fullbacks. At the time, Kevin Keegan didn't want his fullbacks playing as fullbacks. It's predominantly, say, like Lee Dixon did and, and Nigel Winterburn that just stayed there and let the others get on with it. Kevin wanted me and John Beresford to play as actually wingers and David and Keith Gillespie can come in and be more midfield players. So, you know, that's the type of area that utilised me. But I was lucky enough with, you know, Kenny Dalglish, I played a little bit centre midfield. But my best position, you know, and I, you know, I got told this quite early in my career, be a master of one rather than a jack of all trades. So I did feel that I was a better fullback than I was maybe a midfield player or centre midfield player because when you go up the ladder, I can get away with it in non-league or lower league. But when you go up the ladder and you start saying, well, I can play midfield, I can play... No, you, you've got to have a position and play that because in midfield, you've got true midfield players. You know, people like Rob Lee, as I said, and David Batty and Gary Speed that have played midfield players or on the right-hand side, you had a Noberto Solano or Keith Gillespie or Rule Fox that have been midfield players. But what, what my coaches were great at doing is utilising what they can do and what I can do and hopefully it benefits the, the, the team. And that's, you know, when I played with Foxy and... And, and Norberto Solano, not so much Keith because he was an out-and-out flying machine. Uh, they would come inside and I would be their legs to go outside and, and give them the opportunity to give me the ball, uh, which was probably about one in every 10 because I'd make 10 runs and only get it once. But they used to use my run. So fullback is what I enjoyed playing. Um, but I, I don't think I could defend for my life, to be honest with you. But I could, uh, I'd do the best I can. Well, you know, it's more fun attacking than defending. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you see it when you're doing work with Don Howe and, and Ray Hartford when you're with England and Wimbledon. We would like, head and kick the ball and defend. And you see the strikers, they're doing crossing and finishing. And I remember being, you know, with England with Tony Adams and Stuart Pitt. We'd be there for an hour and a half defending, being a unit, not losing the ball. And then you look at all Gaza and Ian Wright and Shearer and Teddy. They'd all be doing free kicks and shots and having fun. And we'd be coming in with, like, migraines and headaches. We'd be ball man, ball man, looking at the ball, defending, throwing yourself in front of it. But it was, uh, it, was it was definitely a learning curve, put it that way. Very nice. Well, um, obviously, 1995 was a big year for you. You made your debut for England, that we'll talk about shortly. But um, you also joined Newcastle United. I suppose it was your first sort of move. And I, and I got married. So that was another big oh, year as well. Better. That was an, yeah, even better. Yeah. A lot. yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but yeah, I guess 95 was also the year you sort of moved away from the London area moved up to Newcastle and joined um, Kevin Keegan's entertainers. I mean, uh, one of the most iconic sides um, in Premier League history. So I guess, did did moving to Newcastle, was that something you, you embraced, having sort of always lived close to London? And did, or did that not really bother you moving up north? No, I loved it. I mean, my mum's from Hull. She, she was from Hull. So she's from the north of England. And we used to go up there for summers to go and see people. So, but, you know, at the time at that, you know, things was going well with, with England and there was, you know, whether it was Man City, Celtic, uh, Everton had been interested as well um, and, and looking at me, Man City as well at the time. But I'd spoken to Arsenal, funny enough, I'd spoken to David Dean. Um, they were still in between coaches and, and trying to find out. And then it was in April, the bank holiday Monday, um, I got a call from my agent to go and meet Kevin Keegan in, in London, West London. He'd come down, they had a game on the night time, but he'd come down on the train met me and within five minutes it was it was already decided I I played at Newcastle in the February time for Wimbledon and I was doing a call down on the pitch afterwards and a couple of players was there in the the physio and I said imagine playing for this lot you know imagine being around these fans and at that time it was only not only but 36,000 people at the stadium you know what later went on to 52,000 and then I you know with the England setup being around someone like Peter Beersley, Rob Lee and Barry Venison was was fantastic, you know. In a way, I'm sort of taking Barry's position, but telling me about the club and you know what they was trying to do. And Kevin Keegan was looking at Les Ferdinand and David Ginola. And if you come in there and your style of football, you're gonna you're gonna hit the ground running. So it was never about where it was in the country. It was about what was going on. And anyone that's ever been around Kevin Keegan uh, and and spoken to him can't help but gravitate towards him because his passion, his love for the game. And the area. So when you put on top of playing against them 
teams at that time and the players that they was bringing, uh, speaking to players, it was it was sort of a no-brainer to go there. And it was seven years of heaven for me because it was a great place to play. I mean, I was going into a training ground with four or 5,000 people watching us train. At Wimbledon, we wouldn't get four or 5,000 people in a Premier League game at Sellers Park. So, you know, we'd play Bolton or the lesser teams on a Saturday afternoon. We wouldn't get them fans there. We was getting more people at training than we was in a Premier League game at Wimbledon. And then obviously the expectations, the city, the vibrance, people that would be passionate for the game. You know, some people could suffocate. And I understand it. You know, you go into a supermarket, you go into a petrol station and it's football, football, football. I went out for a Chinese meal with my wife on a Monday night. Three hours later, we got three fellas talking to us about the game for the weekend. So, but you either embrace it or you get suffocated and you leave. And I didn't, I'd never wanted to leave that place because I'd worked so hard to be at a club like that, to be involved with a team. I'd, you know, for Wimbledon, it was being in the Premier League, being an established Premier League player. I've achieved that. Going to Newcastle was trying to win things and play in the Champions League, playing cup finals, represent your country, you know, win a medal. That's what I wanted to do. Um, and, I, you know, we, we, got, we come so close a couple of times and whether it's FA Cup finals or finishing twice in the league, but it was uh, it was an exciting time to be with Kevin Keegan. Even you know you have to research, but the old granddad collar shirts, the black and white shirts, or the, the colours they had. It was just a, an exciting time to be at a club, um, and we loved every minute of it. Again, not only Wimbledon have we got a WhatsApp, we've got the same with a load of the Newcastle boys as well. Whether I've got Tino Espria, who his English is not good, my Spanish is not good, but me and Tino still communicate on social media. So. You know, and David Ginola or whoever it may be, we, you know, if we see each other, it was a special time uh, for our that two or three years that we was all together. Um, although we ended up having seven years and it got better, obviously, when Sir Bobby came along and we got back in the Champions League. We go into the San Siro and beat Inter Milan three, you know, so them times was back after what Kevin had given us a taste of and, and nearly getting there. So Bobby come in and got the club back up there where it should be. And that was challenging, not necessarily winning. And, uh, you know, we, we we understand there can only be one winner, but you've got to be able to challenge, be challenging for something and get them fans behind you and get them motivated because they are a big, big part. They are the club um, and they're special fans and it's a special place to live. Well, hopefully Tino's keeping out of trouble these days. Um, otherwise, Ke- uh, Keegan... No. No, he's still no, no yeah. it's not. It, that's Tino. If you ever if you want to be interested, follow him on Instagram or Twitter. Yeah. He lives the he lives the life of Riley. Him and Lauren Ribeiro as well. Follow them too. They're either drinking, smoking, or playing golf. Uh, in <laughs> that order. So another yeah. body part comedy that we missed out on was a Tino exactly Lauren Ribeiro, I guess. But um something you mm. mentioned about Newcastle that was a bit of a draw to you was Kevin Keegan's passion. And obviously you were part of, you know, one of his iconic sides that almost won the Premier League and it down the years there's been a few run-ins that seemingly have almost reached a point where it's so close and so intense that a battle of kind of mind games breaks out between the managers and back in the day Ferguson was never too far when that was happening obviously Rafa Benitez got into it with him with the whole facts um, speech in this press conference and then in your first season I mentioned that you're part of that side that nearly won the Premier League and beyond the brilliant football that you guys were playing at Newcastle I'd say parts of that season are kind of synonymous with Keegan's I would love it moment what did you and the lads sort of make of that as it happened did it kind of pass through your consciousness too much did it play a role in a shift in mentality that ultimately proved costly for Newcastle in the run-in or kind of stepping away from that was the failure to get over the line simply down to the players on the pitch I think to answer your question, it was at the end, it was down to us. You know, Kevin wore his heart on his sleeve and Sir Alex had, as, as I mentioned earlier, you do what you need to do to win it. <laughs> and that's that's the difference, you know, and Sir Alex would do it his way. Um, and they just had that mental toughness. They just had that understanding on a 11 v 11. We we're as good as anybody at that time. And we, we proved that early part of the season. Um, and Sir Alex had mentioned about Nottingham Forest not trying because we would, already agreed to for Stuart Pearce to play his testimonial. He had been a great servant for Nottingham Forest and for England. And we'd already agreed, we being Newcastle, to go down afterwards and, and play a game. And in the running at the end, we had to play Notts Forest. Uh, and ironically, they beat us 2-1. Um, so Alex had come out and said that and Kevin had, had took that on board. And we knew it was coming, you know, because of the tension was building up. And being the entertainers, we always played on a, of a Sunday night or a Monday night football. You know, if you can remember a lot of our games, 
was always televised. United would go and play Southampton on a Monday, a Saturday afternoon, beat them 2-0. Fergie would then start. They've got to do this. So it was, we was 12 points clear and they had a game in hand. Uh, but the biggest turning point for me, and quite ironic, it was this week, was when we played Manchester United and they beat us 1-0 at home. Um, we was absolutely sensational for 45 minutes. Peter Smichael was making save after save. We hit the crossbar, hit the post. We just couldn't find the way to get the ball in the back of the net. Hindsight's a great thing. Uh, I think we, if we'd come in at half time as a group um, and said, look, we ain't getting beat. Whatever happens now, we ain't getting beat. The word from Kevin was, as Kevin would be, you know, let's go and show him. You've showed him this time, let's go and beat him. Uh, and that's what he wanted to do. So we, our rally cry was, come on, let's go again. Um, and we did everything again the second half, but we got the sucker punch um, and they went forward. And that was the turning point that we couldn't get our momentum back. Fergie then had started saying his bit and we was, the harder we tried, the, the, the worse it got. You know, we lost, at, as I said, Nottingham Forest. We got beat at uh, West Ham. Uh, Drew at Man City. I can remember, you know, remember all the incidents that go along. And then, you know, we started second guessing ourselves. We changed our personnel around a little bit. Um, but the bottom line is, you know, and there's never a moment goes past or a day goes past. It was down to us, the players. You know, we just lost that sight of what we were, the goal was. Uh, and I understand when people talk about being in a zone and, you know, United had it. They had, they'd been there, seen it and done it. We'd only had Peter Beersley that had won a title in the Premier League uh, with Liverpool. Um, so we'd never had anybody that had won it. Um, and it, it is a it is a mindset. And as I said, there's not a day go by. Credit to them. You know, they they had it and we never. Um, but the following week, obviously, the following year later, we beat them 5-0 just to show them that we, we was as good as them. But, as they would all say, you know, we, we won it, you never. And and they're right, you know, we have to face up to it and be man enough to accept it. It, it kills you because each thinking about it now, it makes you feel sick, but it is what it is and you have to live with that. Um, and it was just a shame, as I said, not for us, you know, or, or for Kevin actually, but just for the for the fans in the city, just for the people. When you see, you know, Blackburn have won it and, and Leicester have won it and Liverpool hadn't won it for 30 years, they'd won it. To have Newcastle up there, which we should have done, we, we, we obviously let them down. And um, and as I said, it wasn't for us. It wasn't for David or Les or Peter Beersley. For us to have them, it was for the club and the city to have it. So it was a tough, tough time uh, afterwards. And the way they built us up and Newcastle, just to John Hall to try and pick us up, they went and signed Alan Shearer for £15 million for a world record. So we felt that we had another chance the following year. But bloody sods law, we come second then. So it is what it is. Um, and as I said, it was a, it was a great time, uh, but it was a tough time to take because we just felt we let a lot of people down. I, I can't speak for anybody else, but yeah, I, I think as a group, we'd all say it. We'd all say the same thing, whether it was Bez, Rob Lee, whoever it would be, we'd, we'd say the same thing, I would think. Mm. You're, you're still our favourite Barton that's played for Newcastle. No offence, Joey. Uh, anyway, moving on to... Um... Hey, can I just say we're not related either. We are definitely not related. <laughs> <laughs> no, I wouldn't want to... Yeah, I wouldn't want to put you in that kind of court with him. Um, again, no offence. <laughs> but moving on to your, um, your England career, Warren. Obviously, off the back of quite a solid start to your time at Newcastle, you did eventually get called into the senior squad. I think it would have been by Terry Venables at the time. And your debut was probably more eventful of a debut than you could have ever hoped for as 26 minutes into the game against Ireland, what would become known as the Lansdowne Road football riot broke out and the game was abandoned. So Warren, sort of talk us through the range of emotions that you experienced that night, given that, you know, one moment you went from making your senior debut for your country to all of a sudden living through arguably one of the lowest points in the national team's footballing history. Yeah, I mean, for a debut, I don't think anyone's ever had a game abandoned after you know, 26, 27 minutes. Um, the build-up towards the game was was one of pride. Uh, again, going back to not being big enough, not going to make it. That Now, I've been in the squad for a number of months, probably about eight or nine months with Terry. Um, been on the bench against Nigeria, Norway, but never really made my debut. And then Terry said, like, w w this is the time. You know, you're playing against a lot of people that you know. Uh, I was actually playing against Terry Phelan, who was my old teammate at Wimbledon a couple of years before he'd moved off to Man City. So there was a lot of familiar faces that I was playing against. And then to be on the field with the likes of, you know, David Platt, Paul Ince, Shearer, Tony, Adams, Pallister, whoever, you know, ground the side, some, some top-class players and, and David Seaman as well, to then being able to have the chance of playing as you're going into the stadium, you know, all my family had gone over there. My girlfriend had 
the time, which was obviously now my wife. She she was there, ready to you know watch the game, and the, the atmosphere was was crazy. It was loud. It was raw. But then when we was warming up in the national anthem, then you you could hear it just starting to get a little bit toxic, a little bit anger, a little bit of. Uh, it wasn't banter. It was meaningful. It was hurtful. It was aggressive. Um, but as players, you just get on with it. You're in the zone. You, it's a big game now. You can just say, it's not a friendly at Wembley and we're going to make 11 changes at halftime. You know, maybe it's the wrong term to say, but the gloves are off. It's a proper game. You know, you, you, you're going to go and play it. And they was playing well. It was windy as anything over there. And then you started hearing, as I said, the, the chants, the noises, and then I was on the far side and all you could see was England fans uh, above where the Irish fans was and also all the complimentary tickets of family members and F FA officials and uh, Irish officials as well. And then the missiles started coming, throwing down. It got stopped. I think Graham was taking a throw in and the referee just stopped it for nine. It seemed like you no know, 90 seconds a minute. Try to get it under control. Uh, with, but then within about two or three minutes, it was out of control and people's running on the field. They're running out of the stadium. Um, the referee decided to cancel the game. The Irish officials was magnificent. They come into the changing room, uh, the Irish people, and said, look, we've, we've got the families out of there. You, they're all in some area being looked after. They're all OK. Um, then it was the referee said, look, we, we can't go on. It's, it's out of control out there. The players was brilliant. People like Point and David Platt. I never forget it. It probably doesn't mean a lot to them, but they come over and said, "Don't worry about it, son." You know, it's one of them things. But it, just a lot of shock and hugely disappointing because it's your debut. You know, it's not supposed to end like that. Where they're not fans; they're just thugs that are just ruining uh, a time. But they, they don't care. These type of people don't care who they hurt or what they're doing or what they're representing. They're just going out there to to do what they feel that they can they can do without any consequence and then the game was banned and um terry was brilliant as well afterwards you know put his arm around me and said look keep your head up son and we'll go from there and it was just something again another obstacle in my career that you just get over it's it there's not it was out of my control i was lucky enough to be brought back into some more squads um and got a couple of more caps but it was yeah it was a <laughs> it was a debut that i don't think has ever been achieved by anybody else and uh it's not one actually that I want to really re have representing me, but it was it was a real mix of emotions because you go from immense pride of you know my country to where you know the three lines means a lot to me. Other people maybe not so much, but to me it was a big big deal to to represent your country. Uh, to have that took away uh, was devastating, and and it took a bit wind out myself, but. Wimbledon being Wimbledon, they come back, the boys being the boys, tried to cheer me out. We had a night out and, and then we go on to the next one. So, um, yeah, it was just, you know, looking back on it, it was it was a tough time. But as I said, it, it, the character is what I've been brought up on. So you just dust yourself down and keep going. Like you said, you bounced back a number of times in your career and that was another time where, you know, it was a, it's a real shame it happened. But you did have a few other appearances for England too, which is great. But um, we're just just before we finish, we're going to talk about um, the latter stages of your career. So after your time at Newcastle, you did end up at Derby, um, who were managed by John Gregory at the time, I believe. And I know you joined halfway through the season. And even though, I mean, it was there were a lot of very good players in that Derby team. They They would ultimately get relegated that season. I think the next season proved quite tough in um, in the first division, I think, at the time it was as well. So um, I guess what, given that on paper it was a good team, Warren, what what do you think kind of went wrong for that Derby side? And I guess to a greater extent, um, ever since really, they had that one season back in the Premier League and it was obviously not a great year. What, why do you think in, I guess, the 21st century, it's not really happened for Derby County? Yeah, I think... Well, I know what happened. Obviously, I'd gone to the club. Um, so Bobby Robson, I was 33, and so Bobby said, look, I'll get, we can give you another year, uh, but we want you to start looking maybe into coaching academy. And I said, Gaffer, look, you know, I, I feel like I can still play. I'm going to be retired a long time. Derby, John Gregory come in. Uh, the contract was signed within like 20 minutes. I, I went down to Derby. You're, you're right, I looked at the players, Young players like Chris Riggett, Danny Higginbottom, Malcolm Crispy, as well as like a Craig Burley, Matt Poom, uh, Ravenelli that had scored goals in the Premier League. So I went there for a challenge and it was a hell of a challenge. Little did I know behind the scenes, 
uh, and I've been working in the PFA, the, uh, the union, and being on the committee, and, and ultimately being the chairman uh, for a couple of years, is that the the wages and the money that was being spent by, to survive in the Premier League, very similar to what Leeds did, they'd overspent in paying people wages, and you know, from, from being a team that was you know six years in the Premier League and stability wise was run awfully behind the scenes financially wise you know there was money being missing it was it was people's computers in the office was being took back by pc well because they couldn't pay the finances and i'm talking about the, the monday after we got relegated looking on the field as well we we the first couple of games we beat Tottenham, we beat leicester we're, we're in now with a fighting chance but the last eight games was against the eight top teams in the premier league the likes of chelsea Arsenal, Man United, who we, we nearly beat, Liverpool, and so on and so on. So it was always going to be difficult with the games we had, but we hit the ground running. And then, unfortunately, a little bit, you know, players lost a bit of confidence. Uh, John started then to think about the next season. And, you know, Fabrizio Ravinelli wasn't part of his plans, Craig Burley, the money that they was on. But you couldn't get rid of them, you know, so you couldn't get rid of these players because they was on big money and the boys weren't going to leave. I understood from both sides. I understood they're not going to leave unless you pay them. Because they was, you know, they, it wasn't their fault they'd been given the contracts. So instead of John, like what uh, Martin O'Neill did at Leicester, and keep Taggart, Matt, uh, Robbie Sat all together, the senior players together, and get out of that championship, John decided to tell six of them, we don't want you to go and find a club. So they go off on their holidays, come back, back for pre-season. John said, I didn't want you. So said, well, I ain't going anywhere. <laughs> I'm on, you know, I'm on X amount of money a week unless you sell me. And, and then it just become apparent with the club players wages had to, you know, um, be halved you know, with, with the salaries. You know, Danny Higginbottom was, you know, virtually in tears because, you know, he, he didn't have any money, Chris Riggett, et cetera, et cetera. They'd all live a little bit beyond their means. And all of a sudden now, bang, 50% of their wages are going to have to be deferred because they, the club can't pay the PFA are involved. And this was a constant thing that was going on every day. A woman in the club shop would lose her job. Her son would be like one of the academy players. And it was awful. It was really, really tough times uh, at Derby. And then that's when the knock-on effect, is, is, and you see what happened to Leeds, it took them 13 years and Derby have, have been the same. It's a wonderful football club, great fans. But the way it was run in that time was devastating because it was living beyond their means. And as soon as it went out of the Premier League, it got out of control. Uh, and people was losing jobs. They was getting fired. People had mortgages and that had a knock on effect. You know, I wasn't leaving the training ground and maybe I could have just got in my car and, and left it, but it's not my nature. I was there until six o'clock at night trying to help people out in the kitchen who I didn't even know, but trying to figure out how we can keep them in the club and, you know, keep their wages a little bit like what the pandemic's done to people, you know, and, but this was a football club that had been six years in the Premier League and Jim Smith had done a, a great job with them. And John Gregory had inherited this financial problems but also Santa players, you know, go. Your best chance in the Premier League, if you go into the Championship, is the first year to get back. If you don't do it in the first year, then you're just another Nottingham Forest, a Sheffield Wednesday. You've seen it time and time again. That are good clubs, big clubs, but they're just surviving in that league because it is relentless. You talk about the Premier League, but the Premier League's ruthless. That league is relentless. It just doesn't stop you play Saturday, Tuesday, Saturday, Tuesday. You seem like you're doing that for the for the ten months that you're playing and. You know, they're all big clubs that think that they should be in the Premier League and that's what you're up against all the time. But would I have changed it? No, because I enjoyed Derby. I enjoyed the people. I enjoyed the football club. But it was a tough, tough time. Emotionally, physically, mentally, everything. And then at the end, you know, Jules Burley come in. I was 35. I was one of these players that he didn't want. He wanted to go younger. And um, we, we sorted out an, an opportunity for me to leave. And... I left and, as I said, I went to QPR for a little time and, and uh, MK Dons towards the end, um, which was, was enough then, was enough to call it a day. Moving from one sensitive situation emotionally at a club from Derby to eventually, like you said, you kind of came full circle back to Wimbledon at the time when the MK Dons thing was happening, AFC Wimbledon branching off and whatnot. Again, I can only assume quite an emotional time for people within the club and the supporters who are seeing their club kind of losing its identity and whatnot. What did you at the time, you mentioned it a little bit earlier, I think at the beginning when we were chatting, but what was that like having come full circle in a place that kind of gave you your first big start in the game? And now, yeah, being back and seeing things kind of begin to crumble around you. Derby was a little bit the unknown 
Wimbledon, I knew what I was walking into. I'd spoken to Stuart on the phone and seen the devastation. And obviously, it's a club that I hold dear to my heart. You know, AFC Wimbledon, I knew a lot of the fans, uh, a lot of the people there that was that was trying to get the club uh, back to where it wanted. They had to drop out. The new owners had gone up to Milton Keynes. So I knew what I was walking into there. So I wasn't blindsided. I knew Stuart said to me, look, the minimum wage you can have is £90 a week. It was, it was costing me more own petrol going up and down the motorway to Milton Keynes. But... I knew what I was getting into and I, I was ready for that. You know, yes, I was playing in the championship and yes, I was, you know, trying to do my best on the field and help these young players. But I knew I've got my head around it. Derby was like chaos. There was like every day there was a, a, a minefield coming along with, with a problem, as I said, in the office, in the streets, in this, in there. It was going on. But there I knew. So when I spoke to Stuart and the players and everybody that was there, I knew what I was trying to do. So that was fine. That was that was what I've, I felt like I, I owed that to the people. Again, in the Wimbledon was a great club. The people in the office were the same people when they were there at Plough Lane. And the same people, probably a lot of them, that are AFC Wimbledon now. If I ever go back, it'd be the same people back at Plough Lane that are around. And so I wanted to go and help them. And I'd had my time. I'd had, you know, with all due respect, I'd had my financial time. I'd had my time to go forward. It was now to step up and, and be supportive of people that had helped me throughout my career. So I wasn't blindsided with it. And I, I sort of thrived in that, going into work every day, being upbeat, helping people out, rising to the challenge rather than walking into to Derby thinking, oh my goodness, what's going to happen today? Who, who's the next one that's going to come at me? Going to be crying and, you know, see if I can do something with a PFA or, you know, speak to the club. Can you not just keep us on, you know, minimum hours a week and stuff like that? You know, that's the, you know, that's how desperate it got at Derby. Um, but at Wimbledon, I knew it. So it, it wasn't anything. I'd go in there every morning. We'd go and get our, our pastries and we'd have a team meeting and then off we go again. And that, that was that was what it is. And um, I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed it. You know, again, part of of learning and, and what you take on board, uh, you know, because not everyone can be a premiership lifestyle. And, you know, there's a lot that goes in it. That's why I love the game. I think, you know, with this time at the moment, with the pandemic, grassroots football is important. Lower league teams are important. Uh, the fans are important. It's not just about the elite. I think we 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 got a little bit short-sighted of what happened in the Premier League the last couple of years. There's a bit more to football in our country than just that. I love what it, all, all Division One, Division Two, you know, all the non-league teams, all the people, non-league fans are, are the funniest people ever. You ever go to non-league? I always say the Americans ask me, say, "Oh, we want to go to." A, Anfield, we want to go to Emirates. I said, no, go to a non-league club. Go to the middle of nowhere and go and watch a non-league team, a local team, and you'll have the best time ever. You won't understand the bloody word they're saying, but you'll have such a fun time because that's that's football to me. That's the, the real football. Um, of course, they want to go and see these great stadiums, great teams, wonderful players. But go and have, a, if you get a chance, always go and have a, have a look at you know, a, a lower league team, where, you know, don't, don't listen to too much of the language, but go and watch your game and be careful eating one of the pies, but you'll have a good time watching it. <laughs> you, you won't get your, you know, your, your happy meal and your happy family, but you'll, you'll have a good time with it. You'll have a good time. Yeah, no cheerleaders either, I guess. But yeah, in spite of some of the difficult times that you had in your playing career, it's great to know that you did manage to play for such sort of family-oriented clubs and you obviously have mentioned as well still being in those group chats with some of your ex-teammates from Wimbledon, from Newcastle. So clearly you built up this footballing family. And as you mentioned as well, football's given you so much, which is fantastic. That's, you know, what more could you ask for from the beautiful game? But I think in that case, it's probably a decent place for us to, to wrap up for today. I want to say thanks to Joe, my co-host as always, and then a very special thank you to Warren Barton. Warren, we really hope that you enjoy being our guest. Before you go, how can our listeners follow you and perhaps... How can any kids uh, around San Diego become involved in youth football? Well, I think, you know, in San Diego, there's so many uh, youth teams that are available. Obviously, you said with, you know, where I live in North County uh, of San Diego, Del Mar Sharks is a good program. It's got over 2,000 in the rec program as well. So it's not just elite competitive teams, which is me and a lady called Shannon McMillan, who won a World Cup for the U.S. women's national team way back in the late 90s. So we work together on the boys and girls side, but as a great rec program, um, Soccer is growing out in this country, you know, rather than over the fields now, you see people playing a football or playing baseball, they're playing soccer. And as I said, for myself, you said I was on Twitter, uh, one button uh, two, and, and obviously on Instagram, on Warren button 22. So um, if you want to get bored, follow me on Instagram. If you want to laugh, go on Twitter. So it's, uh, 
it, it's something that social media is part of it. I remember when people, you know, at Fox for said, you've got to get on Twitter. You've got a bit, I was like, no, no, I'm too old for that. But you know, it does, it catches. The other day I did it. I mean, this is how bored I was with the other day. I spent four and a half hours on my phone looking at social media. I mean, what on earth am I doing with my life? You know, mm-hmm. any kids, I say to my kids, I said, how many, how many hours you spent on your phone? And you're probably the same. You look at your phone, you think, oh my God, I spent three hours or four hours looking at what? Someone else's pictures. I mean, how ridiculous is that? But anyway, that's where you can f- follow me. And as I said, for anyone that wants to play uh, this great game, boys or girls, uh, you know, everybody knows in the States how big the, the women's game is. And that's growing across in our country as well in the UK. But uh, it's been a tough time for everybody, but there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, and if it's anything to do by a podcast, an interview, just a chat, I think it's, it's healthy for everybody to communicate rather than just putting your head in your phone. Yeah, look out for Warren on Twitter and Instagram. It doesn't sound like you'll catch him on TikTok anytime soon. On uh, our side of things, however, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast and you'd like to hear some more, please do follow us on social media. On Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, we are at United Mates FP. And then find us on YouTube where you can put some faces to these voices. Just search for it, United Mates Football Podcast and hit that subscribe button. A big, big, big extra second time thanks again to Warren Barton. Until next time, everyone, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Goodbye.